story is told of the night a burglar broke into a home and he shined his flashlight around looking for valuables and when he picked up a CD player to place in his sack, a strange, somewhat disembodied voice echoed from the dark saying, Jesus is watching you. He nearly jumped out of his skin, as you can imagine. He clicked his flashlight out. He froze. When he heard nothing more after a bit, he began, you know, scratching. He scratched his head. He began searching some more, promising himself a vacation after this job was done. And he clicked the light on and, sure enough, went back to work. Came to a stereo, began disconnecting all the wiring that was to it. And just as he was about to place that in the bag, he heard the same voice. Jesus is watching you. And at this point, he's freaking out. He doesn't know what's going on. So he starts looking around. He's walking in each room. He shines it. And he finally comes into a room. And at the, the back of this room is, is, is a parrot. And he goes over to the parrot and said, did you say that? He goes, yes, I did. <laughs> he goes, well, who are you? He says, my name's Moses. He goes, Moses? He goes, what kind of people would name a parrot Moses? And he said, well, the same kind of people that named their Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> you know, the point of the story, I'm sure there's many, but the point is that, you know, it's a reminder of a very serious truth, and that is that, you know what, you know, God is watching. And not only does he see all that we do, but more importantly, he also knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. You know, he knows the things that proceed out of our heart are the things that defile a man because that's who we really are. So our actions are always preceded by some thoughts or intentions. And if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, where we find the account of two men whose lives are used to demonstrate the omniscience of God, as well as to teach us how not to pray. In Luke chapter 18, we find these words, starting with verse 9. It says, And he also, speaking of Jesus, told them this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. This parable was like the previous one from the standpoint that it deals with prayer, but here the issue is the content of the heart of one as he prays. 
you know, there are four things that we're going to look at that will help us to better understand the message or messages that are, that are in this text. And the first one I want to call your attention to is, you know, the context that's behind the parable that's found in verse 9. You notice that we're told very specifically, which helps us to understand with much more clarity what the intent of the parable is, what is the purpose, what's the message. You know, it's kind of like, okay, what's this all about? What's the point? And the point is very simple. He told this parable to certain ones who were out in his audience, those who were sitting there, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So we know the parable is a very specific rebuke or condemnation to those who have, first of all, a wrong attitude, which is internal, that began to express itself in a wrong outlook toward other people. So he's saying that there were those who had set a standard in his audience. There were those who had come to the conclusion, based on their own standard, that they were pretty good people. And because they had their own standard of which to measure their own performance, they were then obviously distorted to the point where as they saw others they would compare their own standard of how they see themselves as good they would look at other people and say therefore they're not good and so he was rebuking this condemnation was to rebuke those who have a wrong attitude about themselves and then also rebuking them for their wrong outlook toward other people that's the message that's the context that's what's going on and it's important for all of us to remember that you know what all scripture is inspired by god It's God-breathed. Literally, the words that we see written in the original uh, autograph or languages were God-breathed to the point where it's from the mouth of God through the ear of the writer as he wrote down, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit of God. We believe that Scripture is inerrant, that it is authoritative, that it comes from the very uh, mind of God, so to speak, where he says that it's God-breathed. And so, therefore, it comes with authority as God was speaking to us today as he was then, as he will be forever, because the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, we know that all scriptures inspired by God, literally brought God-breathed and profitable for, for teaching what is right, for rebuke, which is telling us when we're wrong, for correction, how to get right, and training, how to stay right. And so here's a good example of Jesus was going to rebuke those who were sitting in his audience who had a wrong self-view and therefore had a wrong view of others. And so he rebuked them. You know, when we live in this ultra-sensitive culture where somehow or another we've been convinced, we've bought into the lie that there's no place to ever rebuke somebody who is wrong. It's like, well, who do you think you are? So wait a minute, our rebuke, we must speak the truth in love, granted, but there are times where, you know what, we all need a good rebuking. There are times when our attitude is wrong, there are times as a result of our attitudes being wrong, our actions are wrong, and we need a good talking to. And Jesus is going to give them a good talking to, and not only is it a good talking to, it's a God talking to, because it comes straight from the Word of God. There are times we need to be rebuked. There are times we need corrected. There are times we need to be trained. I don't know how to do the right thing. How do I do the right thing? We need training. There are times we need to be taught what is right because we live in a culture that teaches us that wrong is right and right is wrong and everything's upside down. So we need a standard that says, no, this is right. This is wrong. If you choose to do wrong, then we will rebuke you. And after we rebuke you, we will correct you and we will get you back on the path that you need to be on so that you can be trained to do what is right before God and move forward in that direction. We need a good rebuking every now and then. 
And you know what? And we're so sensitive in our culture. We get so uppity about it. And we get so defensive about it. Nobody likes to hear it. We all want to be politically correct. And we're all concerned with being more popular than we are with declaring truth. And as a pastor, my responsibility is to handle accurately the Word of God. And there are times where, you know what? Rebuke is necessary. And so if you're here today and paying attention, you may sense the rebuke of God as we go through this parable. Some of you may not because it's like, well, you know what? It doesn't apply to me necessarily in the first hand as it will as you see it goes, what goes on here. And I usually hear from the people, it's kind of like when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs. You know, which one gets the most offended? The one that gets hit. Right? The one that gets hit. It's the one yapping and yelling and screaming. And, and it's like, you know what? Who do you think you are? It's like, look, if this doesn't apply to you, why are you so bothered by it? I appreciate your compassion and sensitivity for those around you who may have been offended by that. But the reality of it is, is sometimes that's just what God, that's just what God the doctor, the great physician, orders. So there you have it. The context of it is very simple. With that context in mind, there were two things that were wrong with the guys that, that he's going to point out. One is he was self-righteous. He came to his own conclusion based on his own standard that based on what I see about myself, I'm a pretty good guy. And because of how I see myself, I see you as, you know what, I actually see you with contempt. You know, you're pretty disgusting. And so that's what he's going to be pointing out as we go through it. Now, the contrast of the parable begin in verse 10 through 13 where we read, Now two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax gatherer. Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this guy. I fast twice a week, pay all my tithes. But the tax gatherer stood at a distance, was even unwilling to lift his eyes, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So here's the contrast that takes place. The the parable contains common Lucan heroes, as we've noticed as we've gone through Luke's study. You know, there's, there's a villain and there's a hero. You know, we got in one corner, you know, we got the villain again, and here's the villain again, a Pharisee. You know, here in, the, you know, in this corner is this villain, the Pharisee. He has one self-righteous heart. And because he has this self-righteous heart, he looks at everybody else with contempt. And in this other corner is going to be the hero. And wow, what a strange contrast it is. Because here is a man who is humble before God. He is broken before God. And he is everything that everybody thinks that he is and he knows that he is. And this is the contrast that takes place. And so what is identified in these verses is, is the classic mistake of confusing the externals for the internals. What you see isn't always what you get. And God knows the difference because he knows all things. And when we can fool each other externally, we can't fool God because he knows our heart. He knows our intentions. He knows our motivations. He knows everything that's going on. And oftentimes we hear people say, you know what? Well, who are you to judge somebody's heart? Well, you know what? And And that's a very valid point because at times we don't really know the motives or the heart of someone. But at the same time, there is there is very clear admonition on our part that we are still to judge the action where we might not know the heart but the actions if they're wrong the actions usually indicate a heart that is wrong but there are times where we just kind of go you know what I don't know your heart I don't know your motives I don't know what you're thinking but all I know is what you did is wrong according to the word of God and so therefore you need to go before God and say God what is my heart what is my motive what what are my intentions why is it that I did what I did because I can say all the right things but you really are the one that knows what's going on in my life I can tell people what I think they want to hear and I think I can give them the right answer, but you know what? Only you really know my heart. So 
Show me my heart. Expose my heart. If there's any wicked way in me, let me know what it is so that I can confess it and agree with you and and repent and turn from it. And therefore, maybe that's why my actions are what they are because they really are a reflection of a heart that's so wicked and deceitful that only you understand it. And And there's many times I don't even know. There are many times, I told you last time, you know, my prayer life consists of, uh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is my heart wrong before you? I don't know. I think that it's right, and I can continue to talk myself into it and justify it. But you know what? At the end of the day, if it's wrong, just show me that it's wrong so that we can get on with it and and deal with it. So these external externals, you know, and so the the examination that takes place or the contrast that become readily apparent are this. And we'll take a look at them closely so that in order that we can better understand the message to, to not only to those who listen, but also to us as well. Number one, we see a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, you know, it was a respected person, at least according to society, a religious member who was a, you know, a most honored social group that existed in that day. So you see a person on the outside, they look like they've got everything right before God. Religious person, they do all the right things they're supposed to be doing according to the sense of the law. And, you know, and, and that's what we see. Then by contrast, we have this guy who's a tax collector, a tax gatherer, one of the most despised, despicable people in all of their culture. There is no worse profession for a Jew to have entered into than to sell out to the Romans and become basically collectors of their fees, and then they would add on to it their own commissions. They were the most despised, despicable people in their culture. One the most respected, the other most despised and despicable. They would be similar to pimps or drug dealers in our culture, people that prey upon others in order to make a living and they were just despised and they were looked at accordingly so there's a purpose of this contrast and the contrast is vivid the contrast is very clear to those in that culture that would understand it and it's kind of like oh wonder where this is going further contrast become evident in their in their prayers i mean look at, at the verse 11 when we're told the pharisees stood and was praying to himself god i thank you i'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. Plus, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, Pharisee had no doubt in his mind that he was a huge blessing to God. How many of you sometimes think, you know what, God, you are so fortunate to have me in your service. I mean, I'm just such a blessing to you and to others. And man, look at me. I'm just so much of a blessing. You know, and that's what, and I mean, because look, look at his inflated view of himself. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like so many of the other disgusting people I meet every day at my office. I'm so glad. Oh, I'm just so grateful that I'm not like them. Man, I look at this person and that person, I hear what they say and I see what they do and I see the things that are going on. You know what, God, thank you that I'm not lying and cheating and stealing like all these people that I work with every day. I thank you I'm not like that. You know, you're in high school and you're thinking, God, you know what, you know, thank you that I'm not like these guys that are out getting drunk on the weekends and at nights and they're having sex outside of marriage and all this stuff's going on, you know, and they're doing drugs. And, you know, God, thank you I'm not like them. Thank you. You know, there's this contrast that goes on, and, and, and it's clear by, by all of this that you see that, you know, what he's actually said that, you know, it's like he said it out loud. That's the thing that's amazing. I mean, some of us think it, and we know better than to say it out loud, but we just think it. It's like you ever say something out loud and go, did I say that out loud? I was just thinking it. You know, some of us just think it. We just think, you know, God, thank you. I'm not like these other people. You know, 
Clearly, God's program could hardly advance without this man's contribution. And unfortunately, there are a whole bunch of religious people, even to this day, that believe that. God, you can't, you're not going to get this done without me. Really? Oh, wait, well, okay, we'll see. You know, what was wrong with this man's prayer? There are several things that stood out as I was going through this. Number one, it says that um, he, he uh, went up into the temple, which meant he went up to the very front so that everyone could see him so that he could now lay out this prayer. So he was very visible. It said he stood up, went up to the front so everyone could see him and now could hear him wax eloquently as he was about to pray. You know, what's fascinating is, is that he was so self-absorbed, the Bible tells us that he was praying to himself. Now, we've had this joke around our dinner table at times where it's like, okay, you know, would you pray? And I said, well, I'll just pray to myself. I said, well, pray to yourself, then why you pray at all? Because you already know what you're going to say to yourself, and so therefore don't even say it because we were thinking maybe we would pray to God. I mean, what are you praying to yourself for? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, pray to yourself, I'll pray to myself. Well, that's just wonderful. You know, let us pray to God. And that's the danger of, quote, worship. So many of us, we praise to ourself. We like certain songs. We like certain beat. We like to clap or not to clap. And we like to smile or not to smile. And we, so all of a sudden it becomes, this is all about me. This isn't about God, or is my heart right before you? This isn't about our, my, our, my, my lips praising to you. It isn't about whether our song collectively as a congregation is, is lifting up God and bringing Him glory and honor. It really becomes a matter of self-evaluation of whether I like the music or don't like the music. I like the song or don't like the song. I like to clap or don't like to clap. I like to raise my hands or don't raise my hands. And if I'm raising my hands, I want to look around and see if anybody else is. And if they are, and I'm not, or I am, and they're not, what's wrong with them? And it really becomes a matter of, you know, we, 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 we pray to ourselves, and we praise to ourselves. And there are times, you know what, we just need a good old rebuking and be corrected to say, you know what, no. We praise God. We pray to God. We have access to the Father. We have an advocate in Jesus. We have the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And we have the abundance of His riches. This is all about Him and not about us. This man prayed to himself. And I pray that we don't pray to ourselves. I pray that we don't praise to ourselves. I pray that we pray to God. And I pray that we praise his name and are pleasing in our praise to him. See, he was so self-absorbed that, you know, he, he laid out the I, 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 I thing. Remember that guy in Luke chapter 12, you know, what am I going to do with all my stuff and build my barns and put it all in and save my money and go on my vacations and do my stuff and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do the other thing. It was my, 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 me, me, me. He goes, basically, he was just standing up front and says, you know what, I, I just want to talk about me. And I will just hide it under the guise of prayer. Are y'all listening? God, get that out of the way. I thank you that I'm not a swindler, a cheater, an adulterer. Oh, 
or like him or like this guy. It's like, what is going on here? And if that's not enough, don't forget I fast twice a week and I'm a tither on everything. Tithe on the gross, not on the net. (laughs) Tithe on everything. Just so I remind you. See, this man's real prayer, as opposed to his external facade, was, God, I thank you that I'm so wonderful. He doesn't need God. In fact, notice, he never even asks of God anything. He never asks of God anything. He makes no request of God. He makes no honor of God. He's got it all together. You know, and after reading his prayer, I wonder if God's thinking, hey, you know what, maybe I should sign up to be his assistant. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, wow, I, you know, I'm confused. But before looking at the contrasting prayer of the tax collector, you know, I sense we need to maybe examine ourselves at this point. You know, I was wondering how often are we guilty of comparing ourselves to others in order to justify our own sins? Yeah, I'm guilty of that, but I'm not that bad because I'm only doing this and I can name off people that are doing a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be doing that, but you know what? I know people who are a lot worse. You know what, God? I know I'm being convicted and I should repent and I should confess that I agree with you what I'm doing is wrong and stop doing it. But you know what? I could be so much more, I could be so much worse than I am. You don't even know how many things I could do that I don't do. And sometimes that's our attitude. It's like this letter that this girl left for her mother. She was passing by her daughter's room. She was astonished to see the bed so nicely made. Everything was cleaned up. She saw an envelope propped up prominently in the center of bed. It was simply addressed, Mom, with the worst mom premonition. She, you know, the room was clean. That's a tip. She, she opened the envelope, and here's what she read in her trembling hand. She read this, Dear Mom, it's with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new boyfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with Dad and you. I've been finding real passion with John. He's so nice, even with all his piercings, tattoos, beard, and his motorcycle clothes. But it's not only the passion, Mom. I'm pregnant, and, I, and John said that we'll be very happy. Don't worry. He already owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood that should last us the whole winter. <laughs> he wants to have more children with me, and now that's one of my dreams. But John taught me that, you know what? Marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone, and we'll be growing it for us, and we'll be trading it with our friends, so all of our needs will be met, including the need for cocaine that we both now have. He says, don't worry, Mom. I'm 15. And I know how to take care of myself. Someday, I'm, I'm sure we'll be back so you can visit with your grandchildren, your daughter, Judith. And it said, oh, over. And she flipped it over and said, P.S. Mom, none of the above is true. I'm over at the neighbor's house. I just wanted to remind you there are worse things in life than my report card that's in the <laughs> desk drawer. I love you, Mom. (laughs) Call when it's safe to come home. (laughs) Nice try, young lady. But, But how many of you have parents have heard that weak argument from your children? Well, yeah, but you know what? But I could be so much worse than I am. As if that's the standard, that's the bar. 
I'm not doing coke. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not, hey, look, it could be so much worse than a couple of D's on my report card. You know, chill out. You know, it's like, what? And, and, and we care. You know, we laugh about that. As parents, we look at children and go, who are you? And then, we, we, and then at the same time, we go back to God with the same kind of weak argument that we just heard. It's like, yeah, God, okay, I'm doing that. It's wrong. But you know what? I'm not doing all these other things I could be doing. So therefore, by my own self-righteous standard, I'm not that bad. See, what, what can we learn from this? You know, there are so many professing Christians today that, that make the same error. They thank God they're not living sinful lives. Their prayer is good in a restricted sense from the standpoint that, you know, such prayers are well enough. They thank God in His savings grace that He's changed their lives, etc. We come into the Christian life and we go, you know what, God, thank you. And we recognize that, you know what, God's forgiveness, His grace, and His mercy, it's all about God. It's all about God. We're so aware of our sin. We're so aware of our need for forgiveness. We're so broken and we're so despised and we're so contrite that we realize, you know what, God, it's all about you and you're the only one that can offer this to me and I thank you that you have. Then we move along the path of Christendom. You know, there's that point in time, that moment in time, we repent of our sins, we trust in Christ, we're born again by the will of God, we know it's all about God, and then we begin to live a life. We live a life of obedience, we live a life of, of, of refusing to do those wrong things. We make right choices, we see what's wrong, we see what's right, and we say deliberately, you know, we, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Yes, I'm tempted to do that, but God, you know what, I'm not going to do that, I choose not to do that, I'm going to choose to do the right thing, and the longer that we continue on that path, all of of a sudden, we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for our efforts. Now it's all about us. And then we look at others who are way back there where God grabbed a hold of us, and we look at their lives and we say, how disgusting are these people? As if somehow we were never so disgusting ourselves that our sin was never so putrid before God. That the darkness within us was somehow not as dark as the darkness in them. And we become self-righteous to where, you know, it's all about me now. And it's all about my efforts. It's all about my right choices. And God, you know what? We have lost the sense that, you know what? But there, by the grace of God, go you and I. That's where we were. That's where he's brought us from. To proclaim the excellencies of him, not us. Not our efforts, not our work, not our right choices, but because of His grace that we are no longer who we used to be. Praise God. This man lost sight of all of that. It was all about him. It was all about his efforts. It was all about his tithing. It was all about his fasting. It was all about him choosing not to be a swindler and a liar and an adulterer. It was all about his choices. And the contrast was so clear. And Paul says, you know what, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things I want to do I don't do? And oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sets us free from this bond of sin. The only reason you can make a right choice to do what is right before God is because the Holy Spirit of God lives within you to give you the strength to make the right choices in which God offers us. He says, you know what? Choose right, Chuck, that I will give you the strength and the power through my spirit to make right choices. 
how easy and quickly we forget. Now, in contrast, notice the tax collector. He stands at a distance versus coming up front. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven because he is so ashamed of his sin. He beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The standard God uses to judge mankind is His holiness, His perfection, His righteousness. He doesn't compare me to you or you to another. The Bible says that all of us, according to the standard that God uses, are sinners who fall short of God's glory. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. This man thought he was righteous as he compared himself to others who were doing things that he was not doing. And he was wrong in doing that. There are none righteous. None of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us have turned away from God. Each one of us, according to this holy standard, the law that He gives us, is a, is a, is a mirror of God's righteousness and perfection. And we measure ourselves against His standard and we realize that, you know, we all fall short. None of us have ever put God first in our life and everything. None of us have ever loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. None of us have ever, you know, never had, you know, idols before God and worshipped things other than God. None of us can ever make the claim that we always honored our parents. None of us can ever say that we never lied. We never cheated. We never stole. We never coveted things that we saw that other people had and didn't say to ourselves, Why can't I have that too? Jesus said that maybe you've never killed anybody, murdered anybody, but you know what? If you've hated them in your heart, you've murdered them, and therefore you violated the law because all that you were lacking was, was, was an opportunity, but the motive and the intention and the thought was there. And so God lays out His standard and says, Chuck, now measure your self-righteous standard to this standard. I'm guilty. Guilty, 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 guilty. Maybe not now. Oh, this one, oh, I'm doing better on this one. Oh, but I used to be guilty. Maybe I'm doing good today, but you know, tomorrow might be guilty. And so God says, Chuck, your guilty is charged. Throw your self-righteous standard away because you know what? I don't judge you based on that standard. I judge you based on who I am. And therefore you fall short. The tax collector looked the part of, the, of condemned humanity and rightly so. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The definite article, the, precedes sinner. He's saying, the sinner. You know what he's saying? I am the sinner that everyone says that I am. I am the sinner that you say that I am. I am the sinner that everyone in this building says that I am. I am the sinner. And as, and as a result of that, I can't even look my eyes to heaven. And I bow my heart and I bow my head and I bow my attitude because I know I'm guilty as charged. And then he says, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, show your mercy to me because there is nowhere else for me to turn. And when he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, it reminds me of Psalm 51. The penitential prayer of David, the sinner, who was guilty of the sin of adultery and ultimately murder. 
And he cries out to God in Psalm 51, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he goes back to the character of God and the precedent that God has set in his word. And he says, God, I know you were merciful to David. And David was an adulterer. And David was a murderer. And David was a liar. And he covered up his sin. And yet as he cried out and threw himself upon your mercy, I know that you were merciful to him. And because you are a merciful God and a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51, 7, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I come to you with a broken and a contrite heart, knowing that I am guilty of sin. And I am the sinner that you say that I am. I am the sinner that everybody else claims that I am. I am the sinner. Then be merciful to me, just as you are merciful to David. How wonderful that is to know that you and I have access to the same God of David who forgave David of his sin because he cried out, be merciful to me. I'm the sinner. I am the man. Nathan said, you are the man. And it wasn't a positive thing. You are the man and that you are the sinner that you just condemned in the story that I told. You are guilty before God. What are you going to do about it? And he knew there was nothing he could do but cry out for the mercy of God. Does he receive God's mercy? Well, let's look at the conclusion of the parable. Jesus says, I tell you this man. Which man? The man who cried out for God's mercy. The man who acknowledged his sinfulness. The man who said, I am the sinner who was unwilling to lift his eyes before heaven, whose heart was broken before God. He's saying, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And what a beautiful word the word justified is. That doctrine of justification, it's answering the question, how can a sinner be, be righteous before a holy God? And we need to understand that he wasn't made righteous because we won't be made righteous until we stand before Jesus one day. He is declared righteous by a righteous and holy God. How can a person be declared righteous? Not made righteous at this point. How can you and I be declared righteous before God? Well, we see the answer. We humble ourselves before God. We acknowledge our sin. We cry out for God for His mercy. Further revelation after this point tells us that we are declared righteous through the death of the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom we put our faith and trust and our hope in Him. God declares us righteous according to Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Titus 3.7 says, we are justified by His grace. Romans 5.9 much more than being now justified by His blood, speaking of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, we shall be saved from the wrath through Jesus. That we are raised again for our justification. 1 Corinthians 3.24 reminds me of this passage because prior to it, we're given this list of sinful people, behavior that is wrong before God. And it says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were declared just in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The point is simple. The tax collector was declared just by God 
as in his humility, he acknowledged his sinfulness and need for God's mercy. A broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. He is the same yesterday in the life of David. He is the same today in the life of those who come to him today. And he is the same tomorrow, barring his return, for the lives of those who will come, up, come to his uh, saving grace at the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. The question, as we, before we look at the, how this all ties together, the connection that's seen in the application is this. Which life best represents you? The one who is self-righteous before God because you do the things you think you need to do? You come to church, you tithe, you make good choices, but your heart's still far from God and you've never recognized your own sinfulness before God. Or are you represented by the, the tax collector who says, God, I'm a mess. And there's nowhere to turn but to you. And I cry out for your mercy. And I trust that Jesus died for my sins and he rose again from the dead. Be merciful to me. I'm the sinner that you say that I am. There's only two people in the world. Those who are self-righteous and those who are declared just by a holy and righteous and perfect God through faith in Christ. Which are you? Now let's see the connection and the application that takes place because it seems at first glance, it's like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? But notice that he ends this this parable by saying everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. Think of all the self-righteous people who defiantly go to their grave shaking their fist at God saying how good they are that will one day stand before the great white throne judgment seat of Christ and they will be declared guilty because of the fact that their actions indicated what God already knew about their heart and that they were in rebellion against God. He says, those people who have exalted themselves all their life will be humbled. Then there are those who have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you and I at the proper time. So when you, are conf- when you confess your sin, you're broken before God. He picks us up. He dusts us off. He exalts us. He declares us just before God. And it's all God and nothing to do with us other than our broken heart that just says, I'm guilty. Now he goes on and he says, And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking him. But Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And so it doesn't, he's not changing gears here. He's using them now as an illustration of this truth that just said, you know what? In order to be exalted by God, you've got to humble yourselves. And in order to humble yourselves, learn a lesson from what you see in these children who are now coming to me. And so as we look at the, life of, uh, the lives of little children, we learn some profound spiritual truth. You know, in contrast to being proud, arrogant people who are self-righteous, self-reliant, self-assured, God's people are to be like little children in in the sense that they have unwavering trust. You think about children, they believe you because you're an adult. They trust you. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, you know, when I was talking to my grandson about Henry, and and, and he said, you know what, Papa, I'm going to miss Henry because I like talking to him when I got my donut. And I said, well, you know what, here's the good news is that Henry recognized that he needed God's forgiveness and he put his faith and trust in Jesus. And I know today that based on what God says that Henry is with the Lord. He's absent from his body, but he's present with the Lord. And so, you know what? One day we're going to see Henry again. 
And he goes, oh, okay. That was it. Oh, okay. Oh, good. That's good to know. Glad somebody got an answer for that one. All right? And it was kind of like, and are the donuts still going to be there? You know how it is. It's kind of, that's the simple way that a child looks at things. It's like, hey, you know, there's that unwavering trust. Hey, you know what? And we've all seen that. You're in a swimming pool. You know, jump down. Jump to daddy. Hey, you know what? You got, they'll jump anywhere. They'll jump off a roof if they think that, you know, they can trust you. And the point is this. How much more so can we trust a God who doesn't have any darkness in him at all that, you know, when your kid jumps into the swimming pool, you don't back off and go, oh, just kidding. You know, th- that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, the God doesn't do that. He says, you know, he doesn't say, God, you know, he doesn't say, Chuck, you know, throw yourself upon me and I'll, I'll, you know, and I'll hold you up and then step back and go, oh, gotcha. He doesn't do that because in God, he can't do that because that's not in his nature. That's not who he is. He can't even think like we think. Praise God that he doesn't. It's our sin nature that makes us do things like step back and go, oh, I gotcha. You know, and, and he says, trust me, unwavering trust. You look at a child, there's this unwavering trust. There's also this helpless dependence. You know, think about a baby. A baby needs an adult for everything. I think about my other grandson, and I have to throw this in to balance out the, 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 the illustrations using people in your family because one will be left out and the other won't. And even though he's six months old and he doesn't know, someday he may get a copy of the CD. So Charlie, <laughs> balancing it out. But, you know, he's six months old and he's, he's just totally dependent upon adults. He can't eat. You know, it's like, all, he's like it's at that age where he falls forward and, and he falls forward and a, and a toe goes in his mouth and he thinks, oh, time to eat. <laughs> you know, and he needs, he needs help. And he's got this, you know, he's just got this helpless dependence. Oh, toe not filling me up. Well, here, try this, you know. And you, and you feed him and you change him and you bathe him and you do all these things. Why? Because he needs it. And you know what? But then as we become adults, we think, you know what, God, I can take care of this one myself. I'll just save you for the big ones because I don't want to burn you out coming to you, you know, trying to waste all my favors, you know. And I got so many favors that I can ask of you in a lifetime. And so, therefore, I'll save this one up, you know. It's kind of like, and then I'll go, hey, it's like, Chuck, don't you understand? You are helpless and totally dependent upon me. If I don't hold the universe in order while you're sleeping, you're poof. Gonzo, you're going to wake up one day and go, oh, wow, look, we're so much closer to Pluto. <laughs> it's like, what? It's like, but we're, 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 we are helpless. We are to be totally dependent upon God. And yet there are times where we go, okay, God, I know I can't save me. Thank you for saving me, but now I've got everything else under control. No, you don't. You have nothing under control. Nothing. But God has it all under control. Coming to me like a child. Untutored humility. You don't have to teach a child humility. There isn't a child that goes along saying, you know what? I'm six years old now and I'm tithing. (laughs) That's right, on my allowance, I got that thing nailed. You know, I'm tithing, I'm doing that. You know, and uh, hey, I'm not that bad. I, you know, I'm keeping track. I got all those stars, man. I give me all those stars. Every time I show up in Sunday school, I got a star. I just keep those star things coming. Look at me. I got stars everywhere. You never hear a child so arrogant and prideful and obnoxious that it's like, look at me. Look at my life. Look how much I contribute God. I mean, you don't have to teach humility to a child because a child is totally dependent on others, totally trusting in others, totally helpless and, 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 and absolutely totally dependent on adults. 
You can't get arrogant when you know that without them, you're in deep trouble. Can you imagine? To throw this out to your kids today. When they get a little arrogant, say, oh, you know what, we're thinking maybe we're going to, you know, seven, eight years old, I think it's time you start paying rent. <laughs> Mom and I have been thinking about it, and, you know, we just don't think you're, you know, carrying your share of the load around here. <laughs> it's like, uh... You know, children don't, you know, children, they don't brag about their knowledge. They don't have Jesus seminars. You know, it's only adults who do stupid things like have Jesus seminars to figure out what are the red words in here are really from Jesus and which ones aren't and which is the word of God and which isn't. It's only arrogant, pompous adults who have more, you know, piled higher and deeper degrees behind their name that think somehow or another that, that they're, you know what, come to me like a child. You know what, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. You know, the Bible says it, and I believe it. You know, do I understand Greek? Do I understand Hebrew? Do I understand all these things in the, in the, in the infinitesimal complexity that you, a wise one, do? No, but you know what? I know this. I know when God says something that I believe it. I know His Spirit, you know, testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I know the promises of God, and I can read them, and the Holy Spirit can assist me in areas that I don't know. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be educated, and I'm not saying we shouldn't learn, but there is something wrong with a culture where people that are hungry for the Lord go into seminaries, and they walk out of that seminary no longer convinced that even God exists. There is something wrong with what's going on in our culture. The Word of God is the Word of God. And there isn't a person that listens today to these words that God isn't doing a work in your heart and in your life. If you've come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God is challenging you in areas where you need to repent. And it's up to you whether you'll be obedient or not. And don't try to find a bunch of different reasons to justify your sin by trying to figure out if that word really meant that or not. Because you know what? God isn't limited by our understanding or our knowledge. And I love the fact that, you know what? When you give a child a gift, they don't even think twice about it. They just go, wow, this is great. And if they see it done in a family, they're thinking, okay, you know, Charlie's six months old. Eventually, he's going to be two, three, God willing. And, you know, he's going to get to come to a birthday. He's going to see Luke's going to be getting some stuff for birthdays and things. And he's going to start thinking, hey, it's my birthday. Hey, gift time. (laughs) You know, and that's just the way it is. But see, prideful, arrogant people, when God says, I want to give you a gift, it's the gift of forgiveness. It's a gift of mercy. It's a gift of my love for you that I gave my son to die in your place. So if you would just believe and receive him as Savior and Lord, that I will forgive you of your sins and I will declare you righteous. And an arrogant, prideful adult goes, I don't think so. I don't need anything from you. And then we stand before God and say how good we are. And he says how condemned we are. See, we must not think a child cannot come to God until he is like a man. The message is that no man can come to God unless he is like a child. We must grow down and not grow up. We must come to him on our knees with childlike faith and say, Lord, you're right. Think about a child. A child knows when he's wrong. A child doesn't hesitate to cry when confronted with wrong behavior. A child doesn't hesitate to forgive 
If a parent says, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Oh, okay. You know, there's so much beauty in a child that gets so complicated as we become adults. What can we learn from this? How not to pray? In conclusion, no man who is proud can pray. It's been said that the gate of heaven is so low that none can enter except on his knees. I like that. No man who is proud can pray. You may think you're praying. You're not praying because God doesn't hear a thing you say. You're praying to yourself. No man who despises others, looking down upon them with contempt, can pray. You know, in prayer, we don't exalt ourselves above our fellow men. We remember that we are one of a great army of sinning, suffering, sorrowing humanity that all kneels before the throne of the mercy of God. We don't look down upon anybody because we realize that by the grace of God, go you and I. And if you are ever to have an impact or ministry with those who are doing wrong before God, you have got to know, they have got to know, that you are, that you are approachable. That you don't condemn them, you may condemn their actions. I had a guy who called me a week ago who was hesitating to call him. His wife said, you've got to call him. And he wouldn't call me. And finally he called me. And there was a serious issue that was going on in choices that he made in his life. And I spoke the truth with him. And I spoke it in love. And I told him how sorry I was that he made the choices that he did. And I'm sorry for the consequences that he's going through. But I've always loved him. I'll continue to love him. And I want to encourage him. And I want to be there for him. And I want to pick him up. I want to dust him off. I want to point him in the right direction based on the counsel of the word of God. But you know what? It doesn't change my love for you. I just hurt for you. And I'm saddened. You know what he told his wife when, he, when she finally talked to him? He said, you know what? There's something wrong with Chuck. And she said, why? She said, you know what? He, he, he was understanding. He was compassionate. He didn't compromise. He told me that I was wrong. He told me what I needed to, do to get right. But, but I still sense and I believe what he said, that you know what? That he, that he cares about me. And I say praise God for that. And I say praise God for any of us who have the opportunity to be involved in the lives of others who are making mistakes that they never sense a condescending, uh, condemning attitude as if somehow or another, how could you do that because I never could? There by the grace of God go you and I. And the last thing is true prayer comes from seeing ourselves in the light of a holy, perfect, and righteous God. See, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, the holiness of God, then all that is left to say is this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is a a light unto our feet, a a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that your word exposes the, uh, the evil in our hearts, the darkness that's there. God, I pray that all of us could be confronted with the truth that we don't measure up to your standard, that we will acknowledge our guilt, that we are the sinner that you say that we are, and that we will confess that sin, that we will repent and turn from it, and that we will turn to the sacrifice that you have offered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. God, I pray for those who have never come to acknowledge their sinfulness, Perhaps they are like the self-righteous Pharisee, thinking that they are good or better than others. God, help them to see that they're guilty as charged. 
that you don't compare us against one another. You don't compare us even against our own actions of past or present or future. But you compare us against your righteous standard, your standard of holiness and perfection as revealed in your word. God, I pray that those who would recognize that for the first time would be broken and contrite and throw themselves upon the mercy of God. And that you will forgive them as you forgave me and that you have forgiven countless others who have done the same thing throughout human history. Recognizing just as you have forgiven the sin of David and his adultery and his murder, that you forgive all sin and all those who come to you in brokenness before the cross. Lord, I pray that as believers who have been born again by your will and not by our own efforts, that we are never condescending or look upon others with contempt as if somehow we're better than them, but there by the grace of God go you and I. And God, that we would be open to being used by you to help speak the truth in love, to use the word of God as a tool to teach what is right, to rebuke at times, to correct when necessary, and to train others in right living. And God, may you get all the glory and all the praise for the transformed lives that the world around us will see to those who have trusted in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.